Hello and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast where we look at the most important issues of the day and an in-depth analysis of what's behind them. I'm Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at the Hindu and your host for today. I'm very pleased to introduce my guest for the podcast, Professor Hugh Montgomery, Professor of Intensive Care Medicine at University College London. Uh, Professor Montgomery's specialization in intensive care puts him at the very heart of the battlefield, as it were, in the global fight against the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. It's my pleasure. Uh, to begin, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about the situation that the UK is facing, and specifically that you think people like yourselves, medical professionals in the ICU, are facing day after day as the pressures uh, mount uh, on medical staff and others um, as this pandemic progresses? Same trajectory that pretty much every other country is following. Uh, China managed to flatten its curve of infection. Uh, Hong Kong seems to do the same, but every other country in Europe and North America, and I'm sure India will follow us, is following the same trajectory, which is a very steep rise in cases. Um, essentially, one contracts the disease without knowing it, sometimes never knows it, um, asymptomatic, develops uh, six days of incubation, can spread the disease probably from day two without knowing, uh, and then the illness begins. Um, people tend to end up falling in a heap day six to ten, sometimes earlier, of their illness. So when you see cases being reported, um, the intensive care hit is coming at least a week or more later. And that's essentially what we're seeing. We saw a massive uptick in cases in Britain in the last 10 days. And that uh, swamping is now beginning to hit intensive care. So my own unit, uh, 10 days ago, we didn't have a single case in the hospital. And we didn't have any at all on intensive care. By the end of uh, last week, we got, I think, seven on intensive care. We've doubled that number over the weekend. And I anticipate that we'll be doubling every two days. Um, the problem with that is that it stretches our services. We don't have that many intensive care beds. We're well staffed. We normally run at 95% bed occupancy. And so we're having to manufacture new ventilators, train staff to work in this intensive care environment that have never worked there before, uh, convert wards to intensive care units. And even doing that, some of my hospital trusts here are overwhelmed with cases in intensive care. And this is a very, very well-developed Western healthcare system, as was Italy's, which was overwhelmed. So if there's a warning to India, it's you've got to take this really, really, really seriously. You cannot fix the problem in the hospital. That will get overrun if you don't act at public health level. And that means social distancing, social isolation very, very urgently. So obviously, uh, you've touched on this very important concept of social distancing. But just before we get to that, could you tell me a bit more about, in terms of intensive care, when, from a patient perspective, should people start considering going into the ER or to the hospital at all, uh, any department, uh, in terms of the progression of their symptoms? Well, our advice in Great Britain, we have a, a, a helpline people can ring, which makes life easier because they can get advice by the telephone. But most people with this disease won't suffer particularly badly. Most might not even know they've got it. And the large majority, and friends of mine, feel rubbish. They have a high temperature, muscle aches, uh, breathlessness, um, a variety of other symptoms are possible. And about a week later, uh, they've recovered and are on the mend. If I mean, the main feature here 
at the time is progressive and worsening breathlessness. And I'm not sure I can really give a defined cutoff for turning up to hospital, but most people know when they're getting seriously unwell as opposed to just suffering from a severe viral illness. So if you've got very severe and worsening breathlessness, and that's a reason for going to hospital. But it is best um, to follow the advice we're following in Great Britain, which is unless you are really becoming very unwell, don't go. You will overwhelm the emergency departments and you will spread the disease when you get there. So uh, if you're just feeling rubbish, that is not a reason to attend hospital because there is nothing that people can do to help you at that point. Nothing will change. Um, nothing will change. Uh, the way you respond to your disease. So um, taking a step back and looking more broadly at the disease itself, and I, I think you spoke on Channel 4 dispatches about the transmission rate. Uh, so one interesting case that I came across earlier was in Korea, someone called Patient 31, a Chinese woman in her 30s who went there. And between two visits that she made to the church and a hotel buffet lunch, uh, with mild fever, uh, she in fact she was allegedly responsible for something like sixty percent of the total number of cases. So you spoke as well about how rapidly, almost geometrically, it progresses. Could you give us a sense of the proportions involved there and the danger, therefore? Yes, and it really is dangerous. This is a highly contagious disease. So um, if you have ordinary flu, the average person will infect one point four other people which means that by the time you've had nine or 10 passages of the disease, you've been responsible only for 14 cases, which is a lot, and it stretches health systems. This disease might have an infectivity of up to three. Now, if it's up to three, that means each person infects three more people. And if you do that for nine or 10 passages, you're infecting, you alone have been responsible for perhaps north of 50 to 60,000 cases of the disease. Now, if each of those carries on, you can see how rapidly this disease spreads with an incubation of only six days. And if only 10% or even less than that of those people end up requiring intensive care, you can do your own maths. You could massively and rapidly overwhelm um, the most developed healthcare system in the world. And if you do that, there will be no one there to be able to help you when you're sick. So the best way of protecting yourself and your loved ones is to socially isolate. If you have to go out, you need to stay two meters away from anybody else at all. You need to wash your hands thoroughly with soap or water if you haven't got alcohol gel. And you need to do that frequently and regularly because if someone touches a surface, the virus could persist there for three days. You touch it, you rub your eyes, you put a finger in your mouth. We all do that, you eat something and you've contracted the disease. And then for six days, you'll be passing that disease on without even knowing that you've got it. So this is a time for keeping a distance from people, two meters away, regular hand washing. And I suspect I may well get this disease, but I've been around this for a long time now. The hospital is full of it. And to date, I haven't yet contracted it because I am sticking to those rules. I stay two meters away. I wash my hands regularly and I haven't been using public transport. I've been cycling or walking. If I see someone coming towards me on a pavement, I cross to the other side. Um, and I've not been going to parties. I've not been visiting friends for such. Uh, we've all got to do this now. Absolutely. No, thank you. Those are very useful words of guidance. I think people would benefit from hearing even here in India. I guess one question related to that is if you are in a family unit that has 
several people, let's say even four or more. And, you know, in, in the Indian social system, you do tend to have sometimes have large, larger families. Uh, is how is that cluster just doomed to fall ill if one person falls ill? Or is there any further precautions one can take within the home? Well, it's very difficult inside a home. I have had friends who've managed to isolate themselves in a home and have basically had um, their partners leaving food outside their door, um, washing plates and things down, washing hands, where the rest of the family haven't gone. Um, of course, the severity of the illness varies. So I've also got friends who've had a uh, husband and two children get it, and the wife, the friend of mine, thinks she might have had it, but it was, if she did, it was incredibly mild. And this is one of the features of this. It, it, for most people, this is not going to be a serious disease. And you don't really know how you're going to respond to it. So uh, you might even get it without being terribly much affected. But certainly if one or more people in a close family unit in close confines has it, it's very, very likely that the other people in that family unit will get it. And it may well be that some of them are only very mildly affected. But if you are in such a home, the advice for British government, and I know that societies are different and Things are possible in one place and not in another. But the advice here, even weeks ago, was if there was someone with any respiratory symptoms or illness in your home, you and they isolated for 14 days before you came out to make sure that you couldn't transmit the disease on. And that would still be common sense. Absolutely. Um, and if we look at it from this sort of national country level, um, Social distancing certainly is the top message I think people have put across. But beyond that, is it sort of does it behoove the government of each of these countries to sort of kick up to the fourth gear and really, you know, do what maybe China did, which is in terms of, uh, you know, bringing together the infrastructure, the hospitals, the isolation wards, the ICUs, the ventilators, um, and also in terms of testing, literally to somehow procure those test kits and start testing the population. Is that the other side of the equation that's required to slow this yeah. down? Well, it is. Um, the public have to play their part. They are the key here. Um, and I appreciate it's very difficult for governments um, because there is a balance here. The balance has to be in favour of not letting this contagion spread because it will kill vast numbers of people. And whilst the elderly and the more infirm and the otherwise sick are much greater risk, it's a matter of numbers. If you've got 0.4% mortality for younger people, that's one in 200. And that's sort of, let's say, middle age. Uh, children seem to be very, uh, poor, you know, very limited effect here. They seem to do exceedingly well. But middle-aged people, if you said one in 200 and you've got tens of hundreds or thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of cases, it's a very big number. For governments, of course, what they've got to do at some point is you only got two choices here. You either uh, wait for a vaccine, but that's probably 18 months away, or you've got to end up with a situation where enough young people can track the disease without getting terribly ill, um, that you get this herd immunity effect, which means that the disease is very hard to pass on through communities, and then it starts withering away. So the downside of social isolation is that it's what they call flattens the curve, you may end up with the same number of cases, but you just get them over a slower period of time, which allows your health services to respond. And whether that works in a particular country depends a lot on whether the maturity of its health services. But if you don't flatten that curve, your health services, no matter how well developed they are, will be overwhelmed. And then there is little that those services will be able to do to help people. Okay, okay. Thanks for that. And so the last question, uh, 
I know that I'm asking you to look into maybe a crystal ball, but just given what you've seen at the rate of spread, how how long do you think, how many months do you think it's going to be before it starts coming under control? Uh, you know, because on the positive side, we have seen China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and even Singapore somewhat bring their daily infection rates down a bit. They were successful because they were completely draconian. Um, and that's a compliment in the way they managed this. They enforced a massive civil lockdown. And so for us in Great Britain, it will depend very much on how people behave. Now they've been told, as of last night, that they're only allowed out once a day on their own or with their family group to exercise once. They're only otherwise allowed out if they're a key worker, a critical worker to go to and from work or to get essential supplies at shops. And they're being asked only to shop once a week. If people stick to that, then we might start seeing some level of control beginning to dent the uptick in cases um, starting in a couple of weeks' time for intensive care because that's the lag phase. Um, it will then take months to get under control. Our, our estimates with a peak were that it would peak sometime at the end of June, so that's three months away. I can't say whether that will still be the case, but we're in for many months even here. Um, and I've heard uh, the US president talking this morning saying that America would open for business as usual and things would be back to normal in a couple of weeks. And I, I very, very, very much doubt that that will be the case. Um, this is a long, long burn. And if India can learn anything from anywhere else, it's just to get on top of this really quickly, because the longer the delay, the bigger the hit you're going to get. Okay. And on that, uh, just regarding India, a small point, um, we seem to have a rather low number of cases, uh, both in terms of infections as well as uh, fatalities. Uh, do you think, I mean, and when I say low, I mean relative to other countries in the region and even worldwide. Um, and it's especially a bit, uh, you know, leaves the question mark because of the size of the population, the density, the lack of infrastructure and hygiene, public health standards. Uh, do you think this is just symptomatic of uh, a lack of enough testing? Do you think we should expect a sudden sort of tsunami of cases swamping our system? Uh, yes. I mean, it's, it's, the virus is the same. It's not mutated. It is, of course, possible that the genetics of the Indian population are different, and we know that genes do make a difference. But I can't see any evidence for that the case at the moment. So my guess would be that if you're not seeing many cases, it's because they're not being reported, and or you're very, at the very beginning of your epidemic. Remember the numbers I gave just now. One person over 10 cycles infection. And if you aren't an incredibly unusual genetic population, you're gonna get exactly what everyone else has got. And that is a tsunami of cases. And whilst only a small proportion will be critically ill, you'll be rapidly overwhelmed. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing these really good insights. I think it'll be of great value to all our listeners. Thank you. Many thanks, uh, Professor Montgomery. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, and those were some really important insights. I hope they will be of uh, much use to listeners worldwide, and including our listeners in India. Uh, please stay tuned for more in-focus podcasts from The Hindu, uh, including in-depth analyses of the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you.